This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. My name is Piotr Kosicki. I'm a history professor at the University of Maryland in College Park. Our guest today is Margarita Fajardo. She's a professor at Sarah Lawrence College and historian of modern Latin America and of economic ideas and economic life. She received her PhD from Princeton University and her BA from Universidad de los Andes in Bogota, Colombia. She has written numerous articles on the history of international development, the Global Social Sciences, and the History of Capitalism in Latin America and Beyond. And the focus of our conversation today will be her brilliant new book just out this year, 2022, with Harvard University Press, The World That Latin America Created, the United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America in the Development Era. Welcome to the program, Margarita. Thank you so, so much for having me. This is very exciting to be able to um, talk about talk about this book and and um so hopefully many more things that it inspires and not just out the book itself i'm sure of it this is absolutely one of the most stimulating books i've read in the past year uh to say the least probably longer than that and i'm just going to open with the kind of question that I ask all of my guests at the start, but I'm going to add a little twist on it, which is for those in our audience who've never heard of CEPAL, if you could maybe just say a few words, what is it and why did you choose to write a book about it? Yeah, uh, so CEPAL is uh, the acronym in Spanish and Portuguese for um, an institution Uh, a UN institution, a United Nations institution called the United Nations Economic Commission for um, Latin America. The institution was established in 1948 uh, with headquarters in Santiago, Chile, and is um, still um, um, live and lively uh, institution um, to this day. I... um, focus on CEPAL, or, or more precisely, the book is more more than about CEPAL, it's about CEPALinos, but we can talk about that um, a little later. But why write a book about CEPAL, as you asked? Um, I think there's, the main reason was that CEPAL, well, there were two 
two sort of uh, reasons. Uh, one was that Cepal seemed to be like um, appear everywhere on on the uh, Latin American history as this crucial institution that was the ideological f- foundation of the development uh, program or project that of, of 20th century Latin America. So it seemed pretty important. And yet it was sort of like nowhere really because there was no sort of, we had like compilation of texts and a lot of um, information about uh, their, like the ideas that uh, kind of emerge within the context of the institution, but there was no real traces of the uh, individuals, of the problems, of the projects behind them. So I was sort of drawn to that sort of, uh, kind of quality to it that it appeared to be very important and yet it, it was really nowhere um, to be to be kind of grasped and the other thing was the other thing that what I was sort of motivating me was that I was it was sort of I was beginning grad school in like uh, just after the financial crisis I guess I was interested in, in working on economic ideas and economic policies and economic life and there was a lot of like um, growing interest in the in my field but also in in all uh, in history fields in in history of capitalism and history of economics and economic ideas and but all of those seem to kind of point to um is up to ideas coming from either the north atlantic really um and so i was i was sort of thinking well how can we have this sort of very important institution that it is recognized as such, but all that we talk about about her economies that are influential are these other types of economies. So I was kind of trying to feel that feel that urge to kind of understand why. Um, well, first, what was Cepal, right? And then uh, why why didn't it appear? Why did it appear so marginal in sort of all these stories? Um, so that was sort of the motivation behind this uh, book. Well, it's clear as one reads the book that Cepal was many things and spawned many things. But you brought up early uh, in in the first sentence of your answer to my question that it's about Cepalinos, your book. And I'm really glad you said that because I wanted to ask what it took or what it meant to be a Cepalino. Uh, and is that a historically contingent term? In other words, very specific or the, the, the sort of identification changed over the time period that you talk about in the book. The book's obviously, and you say this as much in the introduction, at least in part a collective intellectual biography. So you're writing the history of the Cepalinos, uh, but did that just mean folks who played leading roles in Cepal or a kind of broader orbit? Yeah. Um, so, so who who are the Cepalinos and how to how you know who do I classify within that term? I guess is sort of the question. So, I think that um, there are two things that for me helped uh, unify, or I um, or, or or that unify who I think um, Cepalinos are. Uh, first, I think it has to do with um, their um, understanding or their um, they have a shared concept of the um, world economy, the one that is um, kind of the notion that is sort of summed up in the concept of center um, and periphery. And 
um, so I, they have that as, as some sort of shared idea um, that binds them together. That idea sort of takes them to very different places, as I trace in the book. But I think that is one of the fundamental things. And they are part of um, this initial cohort uh, of um, leading um, people at CEPAL. CEPAL came to be a very big organization. It wasn't um, as such in the in the beginning. It was a, a kind of a, a small group. And that's where I'm sort of trying to do the... Um, so that's how I identify them. But there's no... Um, I don't think I ever use like some... Um, I, I like the quote, or let me let me just go back. I like how some of, one of these Cepalinos sort of tells his story of what Cepalinos are. And he says, like, you know, I thought I was a Marxist, then I thought I was a, a Keynesian, and then I realized I was a Cepalin. So it was something that they kind of came to be, let's say, like the, an identity and sort of a, a more than an identity, like a collective project that came to be throughout the years. And that also changed um, uh, throughout the years. And as they, as, as you know, as I trace in the book, there's some sort of crucial turning points in the story that have to do, for instance, with the, their participation in the Alliance for Progress or the Cuban Revolution. But I'll, I'll keep it at that I don't, uh, for now. Yeah, thank you. I, so the ideas that you mentioned, you know, I, I, it struck me, especially early on in the book, there is a lot of attention or studies and for clear reasons. In some of these cases, the Cepalinos did their studies in Europe. Uh, in other cases, did their studies in the U.S. And it really grabbed my attention early on, this idea of Keynesianism being at the heart of early Cepalino orthodoxy. And I, when you talk about Keynesianism and also the Marshall Plan, I found this to be a really fascinating uh, conversation early on in your story. To what extent was Western Europe, especially in this post-World War II moment, a serious model or a serious conversation piece in terms of regional coordination and regional integration? So I ask that kind of on its own terms, but also by way of saying it's wonderful how the quotation you just brought out said, well, I came kind of from Marx and kind of from Keynes, but really I'm a Cepalino. And I wanted, just to put a finer point on it, if you don't mind, did the European legacy matter? And to what extent? Uh, Yeah, let me, uh, I'll answer that question in a bit, but let me go back to sort of some of the thinking of of who are Cepalinos, giving this um, ideas that we're bringing up about schools of economic thought. So I guess for a long time, we uh, sort of understood Cepal and and Cepalino ideas as sort of one um, um, school of economic thought. But I think one thing that is interesting for uh, our listeners to understand about Cepal and Cepalinos is that they are not... Um, you know, they're not university professors, they're not academics, really. Uh, they do have some formal uh, studies in economics, some even like uh, have PhDs, but not most, that, that's sort of more the exception than, um, than the rule. And, and so they're not, uh, they're not what, what you would think 
when like their story is not a story of what you would think, well, I'm going to tell you a story of a bunch of economists. Because that's why sort of in a point in time in the evolution of the writing of the book, I sort of switched to talking about them, about like Cepal economists or the economists of Cepal to kind of just say about Cepalinos, because there was something that they themselves um, identified as as different and not... um, uh, that had nothing, or not nothing to do, but it was not necessarily related to their specific academic training in one or on another institution. And um, so that's uh, sort of something to kind of uh, remember, to kind of give a, a fuller sense of who of who they are. Um, with the question of Europe, um, and the the I, I talk about a lot in the book as the um, as Europe, not necessarily as um, model for them, but as a, as how, I don't know exactly how to call it, but as a reference, let's say, and in the sense that sometimes like, um, um, we think about the European integration process as sort of leading the way for other, um, European integration with other regional integration processes. And what I wanted to show in the book as, as well is, is, is how much this like other processes, like the one going on in Latin America, were almost going simultaneously, and the um, like the Cepalinos were rightly so thinking about like uh, how did the process come about in Europe and the role of the Marshall Plan in making that possible, and hence they were all at many points sort of thinking about like well uh, that was a fundamental. Um, um, asset for European integration that they were looking to uh, convey the importance of to make the Latin American integration possible. I wish sometimes like I could have done more on the reverse relationship, like where Europeans looking at uh, the uh, Latin American integration process. Um, did you know I had to limit uh, my research at some point, but I think as a as an interesting question that could be. Um, that needs a little bit more uh, research. Thank you so much. Uh, I wanted to, to push in on a couple of individuals, and there's one in particular with whom I wanted to start, because, of course, as in any good global transnational history, uh, your book has a lot of back and forth between the national and the international stages. And the book wouldn't exist without the national stories. And I think you're, you're quite clear about that. And you do a brilliant job of showing the interplay and making sense of it. Uh, it strikes me, though, of course, you in the introduction talk about Chile, Argent- or Argentina, and, and Brazil. But as I read the book, I felt like you really liked the Brazilians. And liked is maybe a kind of a facile word here. But even folks for whom things didn't work out so well, like Celso Furtado, it felt like you appreciated what he was trying to do. So I'm going to ask maybe a kind of a, <laughs> an emotive question here. But you know, what drew you to the Brazilians? And is that a, a certain something about Brazil and its contingent historical moment, or is it about the people, specifically the individuals themselves? Uh, I mean, that is interesting uh, question. I guess uh, there's two. Um, I don't think I necessarily particularly like the Brazilians, but let me talk about why the uh, the book, I guess, um, hinges so much on Brazil. Um, 
the book is centered on the exchange, uh, the transnational exchange between uh, Chileans and Brazilians and between the sort of um, co-observation or like the observation that Brazilian, Brazilians were doing of Chile and Chileans of Brazil and how that um, shape their ideas about what should be done in one country or the other and what what Latin America was and their economic problems were um, as well. So that's why uh, I think I, I try to sort of do a relatively equal weight um, to, to Brazil and Chile and to show, I guess there's many points in the book in which I, I show the importance of each of those national contexts for transforming um, the ideas, for instance, with regards to inflation uh, or with regards to dependency theory, in which both the exchange between these two countries and the Chile and the Cepalino and Chilean um, um, the Chilean and Brazilian Cepalinos sort of mattered uh, to kind of understand what they were. Um, so I, um, that's sort of the bigger um, picture of your question. Um, but I, uh, their Salso Fortaus is just, ha, is a very prominent um, figure in the story of, of Cepal. And that's why he appears uh, very, very in, in, in that place. Um, I think a lot of the, you know, we often talk about the leader of Cepalinos is Raul Sprevich, an Argentinian much senior to the rest of the cohort of Cepalinos that he's uh, uh, working with. And I think sometimes, although the role of Furtas obviously like um, recognize the, uh, the, the um, in general, in sort of producing the ideas that we now recognize as, as Cepalino ideas, Furtado also played a role, I think, a major role in in disseminating the ideas in Brazil, which was a um, um, necessary partner to be, like, I guess, to kind of conquer as part of this project, to get it on board, let's say, and 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 diffuse the ideas of and project um, Cepalino ideas. So I think that's why um, he appears so um, so prominently. I was um, fascinated by him because uh, of the role that he did, not just in his intellectual role in terms of producing ideas, but the the type of networks that he created and the type of institutions that he created to give this idea some solid foundation. So let me say a little bit more about, um, and I, about then why Brazil sort of matters so much too, because I think that those kind of institutional networks that he created and those sort of like those institutions and networks that he created have allowed for a persistence of developmentalism in Brazil that is in many ways unique um, in, 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 in the context of Latin America. So um, that, that would be sort of my answer a bit of it, but we can talk about my Furtado specifically if you, if you want. Well, for me, he's part of a mosaic, and I'm glad you brought up uh, Raul Prebisch also. Uh, Prebisch and, and Furtado both achieved or held at various points very prominent public offices. It's And this is something that's striking for me, right? Also, as I read your book, there's an interplay between 
maybe academics is the wrong word, or the, let's let's say Sepalinos who had one foot in academia, one foot not, and then Sepalinos who really wanted to get into positions of state power in order to do stuff. Not that they were power hungry, but that they had concepts. And Furtado was certainly one of the leaders among them. I, I guess the reason I brought him up too, and, and this maybe can uh, help frame my next question, is that he really tried very hard to make the Alliance for Progress work. And it struck me in your reading of Furtado that you were appreciative of him while uncompromisingly scathing when it came to the Alliance for Progress. So if I can, if you want to talk more about Furtado, great, please go ahead. I wanted to put to ask you maybe to say a few words about the Alliance for Progress as a turning point in your story. And, uh, you know, obviously it, it, it coexists in this universe temporally with the Cuban Revolution and what Sipal was doing there, but without complicating things unnecessarily. Why was the Alliance for Progress such a disaster? And, you know, why did it almost ruin Furtado's career? Yeah, I mean, I... I um... Um, yeah, let me, I can talk about like, and in the book, I sort of call it the, 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 the twin um, events of the Alliance for Progress, the Cuban Revolution and the Alliance for Progress, because it is sort of the combination of these two things that really shifts um, Sepal's trajectory. But before, I mean, to explain the shift, I guess I have to tell you a little bit about what was Sepal's trajectory up to um, that point. So I think um, um, the Kind of the first few, first two, I guess, chapters in the book deal with the construction of the Sepalino project and how they try to assert their position and their authority in the um, in the sort of regional sphere, but also in the global sphere, because they're like the way I kind of imagine their world is a, a competition, and that's what I. I try to show also in the book, like a competition of, of different ideas and ideologies and policies, and they need to assert their own in, in their, and, and what is their territory and what, and what is their sphere of influence. And so the first two chapters are sort of trying to lay that out, like lay what the project is about. Um, and it's a development project that is trying to uh, transform the world economy by the trans- the economic transformation of Latin America. And their project um, is about solving what I call the development paradox. That is the, the um, idea that to solve the dependence on trade of Latin America and or other regions on the periphery, periphery of the world economy that produce so much um, raw materials and um, primary products for the industrial centers that there is dependence on trade needs sort of, to solve it needs more and, and better um, terms of trade literally let's say but also better um, um, arrangements of trade to kind of say um, to um, be a little bit more broadly so the Sepalinos for a long time are trying to do these two things right like develop what is it that they're what are the suggestions and what are the ideas and policies to kind of solve this development paradox some of which involve the corporations with the industrial centers and some of which involve the um um demanding like that hegemonic power sort of fulfill 
um, their role as hegemons and 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 do um, a variety of, of of different things. Like for instance, avoid protectionism for and leave the markets open for their goods, among others. So in these two, I I try to trace that that ascent and that attempt to kind of establish their authority. So by the point we get to sort of the Alliance for Progress and the Cuban Revolution, I think Cepalinos have achieved a lot of victories and successes in terms of uh, um, establishing that authority, some of which I talk a little bit in the, or or one that I I particularly like because it exemplifies that sort of ascent is their sort of competition with the IMF. Um, and how uh, they are able to situate uh, themselves kind of in a, like sort of, in a way, sort of like a, these winners uh, uh, in the battle of ideas in, the, uh, in that moment. So it's at this moment that when, the ally- when they have sort of established themselves, that the Alliance for Progress and, and like the Cuban Revolution and the um, Alliance for Progress as um, the U.S. response to the Cuban Revolution come about. And I think it challenges them uh, in many different ways, because these two projects that are supposed to be kind of on the opposite ends of the political and ideological spectrum at this moment uh, in sort of Latin American and, and global history, um, we sep- some sep- divide Cepalinos. Like some Cepalinos think that the Alliance for Programs is the mechanism that will make their... Um, um, project be materialized in part to go back to kind of your first question of the Marshall Plan because it seems to be that that is that is the Marshall Plan for Latin America it sort of finally comes into being and so um, so that's sort of one reason but there's some other Cepalinos that think that is the Cuban revolution that is going to kind of really represents their way to make the project um, uh, real um, and so these, there are different, I don't want to delve too, too much, but there are different like individual tra- um, experiences with both, some of which was Furtado, as you, as you mentioned, that was pretty much um, devoted to making it happen uh, and, and felt very much disappointed that instead his project was sort of um, taken over uh, by the Alliance for Progress um, officials. But I, I'll leave it at that in case you want to, um, talk a little bit more about that in some other way. Well, the twin uh, the twin events that you were describing, I think that the 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 overlap chronologically, and you know, I, I, I have having this experience reading your book where I was thinking to myself. To what extent does the U.S. really matter here? Well, one can't escape the U.S., uh, and not least because the Alliance for Progress was a U.S. initiative. The Marshall Plan, even if it's just a historical point of reference by the late 1950s, or early 60s, was also a U.S. initiative. And there are moral and cultural valences to that, aside from the actual planning that went into it. But I, I'm I'm, I, I did actually want to talk a little bit more about Cuba specifically. There's one thing that you said toward the end of your the the, the chapter about revolution, which really struck me, uh, and it had to do with the fact that uh, Cepalinos. So Prebish agreed initially to start a mission in revolutionary Cuba, uh, and then pulled the plug on the mission. And you said, sorry, I'm, I'm not going to quote you anymore, but this one really struck me, that that 
meant that the Cepalinos could no longer claim to speak to and from Latin America. And I think that maybe was one of the most striking sentences in the entire book for me uh, because of the contrast between this U.S.-driven initiative, Alliance for Progress, and Okay, we can we can and should say all kinds of things about the Cuban Revolution, but this uh, I guess I read it as 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 a kind of a, a betrayal or an unwillingness to see out the process of Sepal's involvement. I wanted to ask you: Do I read that correctly? And also, if if you could maybe say a little bit more, because for me it was very striking to say. Prebish pulled the plug. He didn't want to taint Sepal or taint it anymore. And for Sepal, that was it. They weren't Latin American anymore. Well, I think that I wanted to say is that they, uh, what I wanted to say is that they couldn't, they, like, like literally what I said, like kind of claim to represent the whole region, right? They were breaking off from uh, at least institutionally, right? This is not the case of Mary, of many individual Sepalinos who were in fact even growing even more committed uh, to the uh, Cuban revolution after the, in the institutional break away, let's say, um, uh, from the revolution. So I, I, I do think that that made a, a, a substantial um, it's had a substantial impact in how many, especially in the intellectual left, saw Sepal. Like, was it really that uh, source of like um, um, very interesting radical um, ideas um, about what the world economy was and how it could be transformed and what the place of Latin America in that in that world economy um, was and should be? And so, for many, I think that. That was, I, I think, was sort of interpreted. Of course, this cannot be generalized because um, there, there were many uh, in Latin America, obviously, there were many sort of governments that even though they were protecting or defending Cuba's kind of self-determination, like the right to um, create its, its own path, they, they didn't necessarily like the way they had taken. So, so many were actually like at some point supported Prevish, right? For for making that stand and um, making clear that um, that was not uh, the way they, whatever, quote unquote, acceptable way. Um, but I think that really created a, a, a fissure uh, among Sepalinos and also between Sepalinos and, and the sort of its broader um, or and their broader um, sort of media. Thank you. I mean, this this for me is, I think, maybe that crossroads moment. And I mean, you, you you say more or less exactly that in the book, where we start migrating from separinos to dependentistas, and of course, eh, yeah, I was struggling with the, the the metaphor to think about. I don't know if you'd think about it as a Venn diagram. Uh, a subset is completely wrong, but clearly there's a relationship that I think. Um, it would be helpful to visualize. But by the same token, what makes it tricky to visualize, as you describe beautifully in your narrative, is that that relationship evolves. And it's not, it's a dynamic process. But I did want to ask uh, about the relationship of the, let's call it, IMF critical or anti-IMF is too strong, maybe IMF skeptical trends within uh, CEPAL in the, ni- the, the mid to late 1950s, uh, 
whatever was left of those by that point. And, you know, the, this idea of structural, structural solutions to needed for the inflation problem uh, and the opening to socialist revolution. Because I think one of the themes that really struck me, the differences between the first half and the second half of your book is that in the first half, okay, Prebish, Furtado, they have their politics, but often they did what they thought they did, they needed to do in order to try to get things done. And there is this notion of nonpartisanship. That notion evaporates in the second half of your book. And partisanship isn't necessarily right, but there's a politics to dependency theory. Uh, and I'm just curious if you feel like the structural approach to inflation was ultimately at the heart of the birth of that political valence of dependency theory? Or, you know, I don't want to make this sound like a path dependency. Are we talking about two, two different things here? Uh, yeah, well, let me let me say a, a couple of, of things to um, orient us, I guess. So, um, so first, um, the what is the relationship between Cepalinos and Dependentistas uh, that you asked in the beginning? So um, I sort of for short, I guess, I'm, I'm, I am I started using the word like they're both, they're allies and they're critics. But I see Dependentistas, like Dependentistas are both allies and critics um, of Cepalinos. But Dependentistas are sort of a kind of a new generation, not necessarily like a new intellectual generation that um, emerges out of um, both standing on the shoulders of Cepalino and Diaz, but also distancing uh, from what Cepal is and represents, especially in relation to what we were just talking about, uh, um, the, the, uh, the, the twin events of the, in the uh, Alliance for Progress and the Cuban um, Revolution. And so dependentistas sort of um, emerge out of those moments of in which in which Cepal is sort of not necessarily weakening, but is is at a crossroads, right? What is the next step for this project um, that is has now been challenged from these two uh, major uh, international and, and I guess regional um, events? Um, just before, like in 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 the book, I this is sort of something that I I had to struggle with because like the chapters are obviously organized um, analytically and in in certain topics, but really like the first uh, like the half of the chapters are occurring at the same time. There all these events are sort of intermingled. Uh, so the Alliance for Progress and the Cuban Revolution, the debates about inflation and what to do with it and sort of the structural solutions that you were alluding to, they're all happening at the same time, even though I sort of um, separated them and, um, analytically into um, two chapters. And I think, uh, I don't know if necessarily like um, the, uh, there is necessarily a um, um, direct relationship, let's say, from between the um, debates about inflation and the birth of the Cepalino approach to inflation or the structural approach to inflation and what comes later um, um, and what the dependentistas see on Cepal. There is not a, a direct relationship in terms of like the 
genealogy of ideas, let's say. But there is a relationship in terms of what is the political standing of CEPAL. So I think dependentistas are confronted with a CEPAL that has sort of, in a way, two faces. Like on the one hand, it has adopted a very different stand um, 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 to the IMF, right? It has said like, okay, the policies that the IMF is recommending to deal with the inflation problems that are um, affecting our countries are not necessarily the best ones that um, that we consider. There are many, um, like the Cepalinos, for instance, thought that inflation was sort of a result of the process of development and, and therefore had in a way had there was some tolerance that um, policymakers and and an institution and global governments institutions have to have with inflation because it was sort of part or as a result of the development process and only by um, solving sort of one of those development paradoxes and other uh, problems such as the um, agricultural productions for instance in the case of Chile could um, inflation that be resolved. So on the one hand, there was this CEPAL that was seemed to be very, uh, you know, to say the least skeptical of the, as you said, of the IMF position. But on the other hand, we have a CEPAL that has uh, some CEPALinos that are um, very much aligned with the Alliance for Progress and the U.S. Project of, of Development for Latin America. So that I think that crossroads or that context in which CEPAL has this possibility of going um, in very different ways is what creates the, the, the sort of reflection about Cepalino ideas that will eventually lead to dependency. So it's like a kind of assessment. And, and, and we should remember a bit, and this is why you said like it's hard to draw the lines and do you need a Venn diagram or not? Because some of these Cepalinos eventually sort of turn dependentistas, right? But um, I, I sort of also try to um, distinguish them uh, analytically to show the evolution of, of their ideas and especially to show, as you said, uh, I spend a lot of time in the book discussing the politics of dependency theory, like what, how, many, how much was at stake in very small definitions of what this theory was and what it meant and how much was at stake in the early 1960s when it emerged in Brazil and how much was at stake later on in, 19, in the late 1960s in Chile when it consolidated as this sort of more um, kind of intellectual force with global repercussions. Thank you. I mean, that was a marvelous synthesis of, of, of how the book is, is it coheres. And I think the argument really, uh, you, you distilled it just marvelously for the readers. Readers, make sure you buy the book. Margarita <laughs> didn't tell you everything, I promise. <laughs> but I, I, I'm going to actually take up the last thing you said about the, the political options that, that were available, in part because I found... Um, I mean, I, I, I should be clear about my own prejudices here for a second. I am, among others, a historian of global Catholicism, and I'm very interested in Christian democracy. So, you know, whenever you would talk about Eduardo Frey, I would mark it up with an asterisk. Uh, and, of course, Frey does play a role in uh, at least the first half of this story. But then again, even if we're talking about, let's say, 
the more left-leaning side, and left and right aren't exactly fair terms when we're talking about Christian democracy, but the Christian Democrats in different Latin American countries were very different from one another. So it strikes me, even that photo you have early in the book where Frey and Salvador Allende are together smoking cigars uh, <laughs> in 1944, I think it was. That is a really striking thing to see, given what I know of what happened later, of how, you know, after Allende's death and, and the coup, Frey basically helped to legitimate uh, the, the Pinochet regime. But in between sort of helping to, trying to propel maybe Cepal to a more visible place, obviously it was Santiago, it was his country, so Frey cared what was going on and what they were thinking. And uh, sort of really shifting in terms of his position in terms of the 70s after his presidency, there was a Christian Democratic presidency in the country that hosted Sipal. So this may not be about religion at all, but I'm just curious, given that left and right military dictatorship and Marxist revolution are framing parts of your overall narrative, do the Christian Democrats deserve ideologically or maybe in terms of political economy, which is pretty important to Christian Democratic um, policies, uh, some kind of stake in the story? Or, or were they just kind of blowing with the wind? No, I mean, I, I, I don't think they're um, – I think they do deserve and they have a place in the story. There's a, there's a threat that comes from this story of Frey and, the, and some of the Christian Democratic projects that I um, – interested in following and starting to follow um, with one a project um, that didn't make it to the book, but I'm starting to work on, which is the um, Andean market. Um, so just that emerges in the in the Christian Democratic um, government of Eduardo Frey. Um, so I'm, I'm doing that uh, more and doesn't show up in the book. But what I would say of of what it means that um, Cepalinos had these conversations or were part of the circles of all these Chileans, but also Brazilians and also sort of, you know, Venezuelans or Colombians that belong to sort of very different ideological stripes, let's say, or that eventually kind of, as you say, like uh, kind of are going to belong to sort of different um, uh, ideological and political um, uh, affiliations. I, I think that to me, that means two things. So one thing is that um, sort of it shows it also shows that the kind of um, educated elite that these Cepalinos were part of, right? Like there's a small circle of people who are part of this um, educated elite who had access to um, this sort of social um, context in which some of these ideas uh, develop, right? Like these exchanges in like somebody's house or, or uh, that is very common among these um, networks. And I guess any uh, other network, right? It's just not happening in 
the text or discussions on reports, but it's also happening in, in these social settings. And um, so I, I would say that that points to that. And the second thing that's just also something that I try to show in the book is to what extent and also relates to the point of the relations between um, Alliance for Progress and Cuba is to what extent Cepalinos had sort of become the center of a kind of a regional consensus, that they had become this sort of um, reference of um, hegemonic ideas to kind of get go back to the some of the things that I said in the beginning. How had they established themselves as some sort of key reference point for the um, uh, political elite uh, in the region and the policymaking elite? So, um, so I think that that's that's what I wanted to show with all of them that that even if you like them or not, or if you were their friends or their allies, you were kind of forced to kind of um, take them into account, let's say. And so that to me was sort of crucial and that's sort of the role of Frey. But I must say that uh, Frey used to occupy a lot of um, space and his government used to occupy a lot of space in the book. In previous iterations, I had to sort of... um, get rid of that to kind of make it more sort of coherent. But it does appear as as some of the context in which, for instance, the book um, Dependency and Development, a classic of dependency theory is written. That is the moment that it appears. And I don't think it's sort of non-coincidental that that is uh, sort of one is considered kind of a more or a less radical version of dependency theory that it emerges in like this sort of less radical um, uh, government of Chile in relation to what's going to come next when Allende and, and, and socialism become the uh, dominant project. Well, so actually, this is this is exactly where I was hoping to go next. Let's talk about Allende and uh, and Pinochet also for a minute. I, I should step back for a minute and say, obviously, coups and revolutions frame the entirety of the story, right? I mean, it, whether we're talking about uh, Prebis struggling with Peronism or uh, about how the Brazilian military dictatorship uh, transformed Furtado's career and also you know, all the, the young generation, the dependentistas, of course, that's how they ended up in Chile and out, spread elsewhere across the region. So uh, when it comes to the early 70s. On the one hand, Santiago reads in the last chapter of your book like the coolest place in the world, I have to say. (laughs) I really, I'm serious. I really enjoyed reading that chapter. It's vibrant. It's a a global crossroads. And we see that when you bring in Samir Amin and the emergence of the World Systems crew. It's a really fascinating place intellectually. And of course, that is completely decapitated uh, with uh, the coup. So, if I want to, if I could just encourage you to zoom in for a second on that moment, uh, for the purposes of, of the audience, and sort of, you know, tell us what what do you think that contrast and that sort of shock of going from the most vibrant to I don't want to say the most repressive because that might not be the a fair judgment, but Pretty repressive, pretty repressive, especially given what had existed uh, just before, it meant uh, for all the players in your book. 
Well, yeah, that's <laughs> it's a big um, it's a big topic. Let me just go back a little bit to when you said like how much the coups and revolutions and these military takeovers are are shaping the story. I guess I I wanted I wanted one of the main goals of of this book was to make this these ideas be ingrained in their in their context and show how much of these politics that we think of whether we want to you know right and left or capitalism on socialism were being were both uh, had an impact obviously on the way Cepalino ideas developed but also how much Cepalinos were sort of affecting those kind of alignments let's say those sort of coordinates let's um uh, to call it so a lot of that is 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 why they appear kind of so prominently because I wanted to show sort of their politics of their expertise and that's that's what's driving them and Santiago as you say like Santiago in the in the 70s is 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 just one of those very vibrant examples of of precisely the politics of these expertise so um in the what what I see happening um, in the seventies is in Santiago is that, and and really the late the early the late sixties and and up to the early seventies, um, a lot of the Brazilians uh, who had been thinking about dependency ideas who had developed ideas about dependency in very specific. Um, a regional or local centers within Brazil, be it Sao Paulo or Rio or, uh, um, or more concretely Sao Paulo and Brasilia, sort of migrated to Brazil and um, in part um, escaping um, the uh, military uh, coup that had happened in 1964. And then they found themselves in Chile and others for other reasons, you know, for instance, Gunder Frank was not living in Brazil at the time, but he also um, um, comes comes to Chile sort of at this moment. And what I um, and what I think Chile creates is, is a, what they find in Chile is a very politicized environment and how their ideas, what I want to try to show their their uh, dependentistas sort of kind of fuel that politicization even even more. Um, there's a lot of um, divisions that among the dependentistas that I trace pre- precisely because of these different political um, alignments that are going to transform what the theory looks like and what it um, and how it is read across the world. Um, so the politics of 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 the 1970s Chile is going to become sort of crucial to understand how dependency was read and how it and 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 basic and how it, it migrated um outwards um uh, from um Santiago and i guess in stark contrast to what happens in 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 after after the 1973 um uh, military coup and the assassination of of Allende does feel like there's a, a retrenchment uh from from this very active political milieu. But there's also something that I see uh, happening a lot of these intellectuals in this context of, of dismay and terror and uh, uncertainty, um, that they're also sort of reflecting of what was the role of intellectuals then and what should be the role of intellectuals in this sort of new era. And I think those are very um, interesting questions that I'm sort of hoping to kind of follow as well. You know, what happens to and how do these, these as you were saying, this very vibrant, radical um, um 
area sort of transforms and doesn't it transform into something completely different but we do there are still traces of that but it's important i think that's something i'm interested in working and kind of following up uh, more i don't know if i answered the question or give it like uh, as vivid as image as um as i did on the book but maybe that's good. So people go. Well, of course. <laughs> One of the goals here will remain. And I'll remind everyone at the end that we want folks to go out and, and get the book and read it because it's really marvelous read in addition to being such a major intervention. I want to take up the question you posed just now that you said you want to continue following about intellectuals and maybe uh, ask a methodological question. But I mean, it's it's connected to the content too. I've found there to be really uh, some pretty interesting work in recent years uh, in the global history of economic thought. And it strikes me that your book, I, I'm still not sure I have the right noun. Corrective is probably not it because I don't want to take anyone else down, but uh, the perspective is new for me. And I say this as someone trained in a different field, but who's really actively following how different fields entangle with one another. And economic thought is clearly one of the places where, quote unquote, it's at uh, right now. Uh, And intellectual history really strikes me as a powerful tool for looking at the emergence and transformation of global institutions. So I want to ask you maybe a, a, a twofold question about this. One is, if you feel like uh, the kind of sources you were able to get to and the kind of story that you wanted to tell really demanded intellectual history, really, uh, I mean, can you imagine telling the story of CEPAL and, and the legacies it had for global economic thought without a lot of intellectual history? And then second, you know, where you think of that particular method as you've employed it, uh, joining a wider conversation. I'm thinking here, for example, of, of Quinn Slobodian's book from 2018 about so the, the book Globalists about the neoliberals, which you know starts in Habsburg, Vienna, and ends up also uh, talking about the new international economic order at the end of the book. So I will leave that to you. Yeah, there's like uh, kind of three questions on, on this question. So let me see if I can um, um, sort of uh, answer them. So, so first, the the kind of talk about the type the type of intellectual history that I was doing and 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 how it helps us trace the um, these um, insti- institutional histories. I think we're in a very broadly um, uh, speaking, the field is in a very interesting place of opening opening up all these um, all these institutions that had sort of had remained closed. We we sort of had an idea. Of, of the, and and I I like this. I use this quote from Hirschman a lot because it's, it's it's a very useful one. That these institutions like the IMF or the World Bank or or in my particular case of Cepal had personalities, and we sort of know what they are and what they meant and what is the role that they're to play in the world. We all you know we sort of had figured that out. Um, already we're just showing how it happened and I think that we're in a very interesting moment of sort of as I was saying sort of opening up those institutions and 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 one of those um, 
um, and, and intellectual history does provide a possibility. I think intellectual history, obviously, like broadly understood, right? Like not understood as a history of ideas contained in the in the in the text, but very much uh, trying to think about the relationship between the content and the context, and understanding the. Um, the places from which people are enunciating their political ambitions and what is also not said or what is implicit in 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 many of these conversations that are actually shaping these um, ideas. So um, I think that is very um, that that is definitely like a, I think that my book is sort of part of that, and I see I see more of that coming up now, like not the stuff that is being published, but I see works that are in the works <laughs> and that are going to come up and going to um, ab- absolutely help um, with that project. I also think that um, I, I, for me, for instance, uh, for my particular project, they use, because I didn't have um, a CEPAL archive, there was no, there was a few pieces of, of documents of CEPAL at the UN in New York and at the UN in Geneva and a few extra at the UN in Santiago, but there was no uh, actual uh, sort of institutional archive. The institutional archives of these other institutions like the IMF or um, especially the IMF, although I used to a little bit the World Bank, is, it helped me recreate this story and and understand how much ideas matter for these institutions. Some, some of these institutions and international governments, we were looking at it maybe before, like before sort of this kind of scholarly generation as plainly expressions of interests. And I think most of us are a lot of people who are working on this are trying to understand um, um, them just beyond that, beyond representing the geopolitical interest of certain nations and, and actually sort of taking the ideas of the bureaucrats and all the members of these institutions sort of seriously. So um, I would say about um, that to kind of your first two questions. And sort of the the other um, latter question about, you know, how is this um, book uh, I, um, kind of compared to sort of other histories of like international governance? Um, I think there's two ways in which I I. I I sort of tried um, to to make it an intervention first in showing um, how much uh, something that I begin to talk in the beginning uh, or something that I talked to about in the beginning, how much of these ideas sort of represent um, how much the power of these ideas in the region and the world in a in a sort of global context in which we think that you know the the powerful ideas are those that are, or the ideas that have power, let's say, that have influence, that manage to shape things, are the ones that are uh, coming from the global north. And that is something that we still see in in many of the works on, inst- on international uh, governance. They're very much um, not only sort of implicit in their narrative if you read how they who the actors are where the agency is located even when they're talking about like um um um, other regions in sort of the global south the agency is not there and that's what i really try to do with this book not just in terms of the argument like to say what i was saying uh but also how i was saying so i try to 
emphasize on this this implied after after a point that I sort of discovered this implied a major uh, rewriting to kind of shift the narrative and 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 make the not just the what I was saying but the how I was saying it uh, matter um, in the book. So those um, I would leave it at that. I think that's a real model to follow in the sense, and, and you're quite clear about this, you know, in the epilogue, you sort of go into the role that your actors and your story play in the creation of the field of Latin American studies among among other fields. But by the same token, the book is global history as well as Latin American history. And you're very emphatic about that. And personally, I like that. But I also think that, you know, it's it's a serious methodological question. How do you present yourself as having the bona fides simultaneously to intervene in parallel in the two fields? Yeah. Uh, well, that is certainly a risk I took. But um, I, I think I will defend that, you know, um, that sort of methodological choice because, you know, I don't think global history by global history, we need to do sort of like exhaustive right like it's impossible uh, to do it but i i did want to show like uh, first the, the impact of so many different uh, global i guess processes and and questions that were beginning with the, just the mere concept of what international development was and the impact that this um in P, this group of the cepalinos independentistas had in the world but yeah i mean i i think it is it is, you know, I, I think I would leave, you know, let the readers to sort of uh, make the final assessment of whether I was able to pull that off. Well, I, I'm, I'm sad to say that it's time for us to come to the last question. So as I always do in, in my podcasts, I, I finish by just asking, what are you working on now? Uh, I am working. Um, I am working a lot on 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 promoting this book, but um, I'm also working. Um, uh, I'm also working on on what I think I'm um, doing for a new project is um, something that I've sort of tentatively titled "Development as Vocation: uh, Latin America in the Neoliberal Era." So I'm sort of um, trying to understand the legacies and continuities of, of development in, in an era that sort of declared them defunct. And a lot of this has to do with tracing kind of some of them are loose threads, as, as I was saying before, that came from this project, but that had very different repercussions and very different set of actors uh, than the ones that I that I um, talked about in this book. So I feel like at this point in my um, kind of trajectory, this is just the opening scene that I hope will lead to something different. But at least, you know, you have to begin somewhere. And this is where I'm beginning. Well, it sounds wonderful. I can't wait to see where the trajectory takes you. And let me just remind everyone once again that we've been talking about a book entitled The World That Latin America Created, the United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America in the Development Era, published by Harvard University Press this year, 2022. Our guest has been Margarita Vajato, professor from Sarah Lawrence College. Margarita, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you very much for um, inviting me and thank you very much for this conversation allowing me to touch upon so many different topics. I hope, uh, yeah, hope to come back here again in 10 years or so. <laughs>
I know that the listeners, as well as certainly I, were looking forward to it. Thanks uh, to everyone for listening and uh, wishing you all a good day.